Well, this morning we resume our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, we've been in this uh, letter for quite some time on, on and off. I can't remember if it's now moving on two years or whatever, but then again, uh, the past year is still sort of a, a blur. Uh, but we are coming toward the end. We are in Romans chapter 15 this morning. I invite you to turn your, your Bibles there. And we will be in Romans 15 this week and next week. Uh, then coming together for the Lord's Supper uh, for uh, probably a particular Mother's Day message. And then back and finishing up Romans 16 uh, by the end of May. Uh, and so I hope that you have benefited from this. And I hope that many of you have taken up the challenge that we laid out when we began to read through this letter uh, once a month uh, while we are in this uh, studying it. And I hope that it is bearing fruit in you as this letter has in people and in churches and in countries throughout the world since Paul first wrote it. But our reading this morning is Romans 15 verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of God. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through in the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's faithfulness or truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. And let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we gather this morning, we do pray that you would speak to us, that this portion of our service would continue to be worship uh, while we remain silent, most of us anyway. But in that silence, may you speak, and may you shape us and mold us. May you inform us and form us, that we may be conformed more and more to be like Christ be who you have created us to be. And so, Lord, as we respond by opening our minds and 
seeking to understand what, what is it that you have recorded through your servant, Paul, as we seek to understand what that means and as we open our hearts to allow it to speak to us and to correct where we are erring and to affirm where we are hurting. Lord, let us experience your grace through this word that we may praise your name here and wherever you take us. Here in this church, even as your name is being praised throughout the world. To you, our Lord, belongs all glory and honor in the church and through the world. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus, who is the Word incarnated. Amen. Hanging in the chancel of a small church in the hills of Tennessee, there is a beautiful, although unusual, cross. There's a story behind the cross. It doesn't go back far in, in one sense, but it goes back quite, uh, you know, 100 years or so in another. Several years ago, one of their church members had moved into an old farmhouse about the same time that the church had moved into a building that had once been uh, kind of a granary, uh, a grain holder for the railroad along the main, near the main rail, uh, road uh, in that town. As you would expect in anybody moving into any old farmhouse or into a, an old railroad station, uh, there was a lot of debris hidden in the attics and crevices and basement and the barns. And so this man and some of the other church members were working together and trying to clear all those things out so that the home would be livable and the church would be functional, the church building would be functional. And so this pile of debris of old broken pipes and pieces of metal and old broken furniture and pieces of wood that not sure what else they might have come from, perhaps beams, perhaps old walls. But all of this had been piled up perhaps over time, generations, for a hundred years. And the church member that had moved into the farmhouse was an artist. And in this pile of brokenness and debris, he saw something beautiful. And so he took the pieces of the broken furniture and the discarded pipes and the old metal and all of these pieces together and he fashioned them into a cross. And then he gave it to his church. And it hangs there where those who gather to worship every Sunday have a visual and vivid and artistic reminder that this represents them as it represents us. Because we are all broken in some way, and some among us have been discarded, whether by family in the past or uh, by friends or circumstances in life, feeling like they are, are left alone. It's true for us. It's true for that church. It's true for many and most and perhaps hopefully all churches. People come from different backgrounds, from different things, and everyone is broken. And yet the visual reminder of this artistic piece, this artistic artwork, is to say to us is by the power of the cross, we are not only made whole, we are made one. 
And despite our own brokennesses and the fact that we don't really quite fit together, when we are brought together by the power of the cross, we are a beautiful piece of art. And the scripture tells us that we are God's handiwork. And, and the word that is used there in the Greek for handiwork is poema, which, from which we get our word poem. It's also translated work of art. We, who are believers in Christ, we are God's piece of art. He is knitting us together, molding us, that we might find our purpose, we might find our place together, and as we are together, we glorify him because we see the majestic creativity and power of his artistic hand. And yet, if you've been around churches for any length of time, you know that almost every church in any season has different aspects, different factions that are, if not threatening, inclined to begin to pull apart, to, to separate, to want their way at the expense of others, to want to validate their own brokennesses and personal preferences at the expense of somebody else's brokenness and their personal preferences. It's so common and it's not restricted to our American individualism because the Apostle Paul wrote about it in the, this letter to uh, the Romans. In Romans chapter 14, Paul began an argument that he continues into the beginning of this chapter of Romans chapter 15. In Romans chapter 14, Paul is calling for those who are followers of Christ to learn to live together in unity and harmony, despite the fact that they sometimes have differences. And sometimes their differences can be quite significant. Now, their differences can come from different sources. Sometimes they are issues of conviction, different ways of, of looking at uh, secondary doctrinal issues. Sometimes they are issues of, of conviction, of personal practices, what some feel more liberty to engage in things, and others feel more restricted. Paul refers to those who have more liberty as the strong, and he refers to those who are more restricted as the weak. And, and, and he himself, though, is speaking and saying that those who are strong should not despise, and just those who are weak, those who seem to uh, want to restrict um, everything and, and, and only uh, do the, the least, uh, exercise the least amount of, of freedom. And he tells those who are more restricted that they shouldn't be judging those who, are, uh, who have more freedom, especially if they are dealing with an issue that is about liberty, an issue that the scriptures do not specifically forbid. He's calling them to live together despite their differences with respect and in harmony, and harmony being where different notes are being played, but together in a way that creates a, a beautiful sound. The call to harmony is a recognition that we don't try to make people conform to become like us, to fit in, but they conform to be like Christ, which means as they are made like Christ, and in Christ and God who has made us and made each of us different, we bring different things to the table. The things that create uh, tension for us, the things that sometimes rub us the wrong way, when they are brought together, they are harmony in the ears of God, and harmony in the eyes of the world that is watching. It's not that there are no things that are non-negotiables. 
Scripture talks about certain things that are of first importance. Those are gospel issues. Some would call this the, the Apostles' Creed kind of faith. All of the things that are listed there that are shared by believers of every generation and of every nation, those are the things that are among the essentials of the faith. And, and on those things, there should never be any compromise, and there should never be any negotiation. But when you move beyond those things, there are so many more things that are of secondary or even tertiary importance where we disagree, perhaps because we emphasize certain aspects of what is revealed over and other people emphasize other things, perhaps because some have dug more deeply in and have more resource to understand and others have only looked more superficially and don't have the same resource well to dig into and so therefore lesser understanding. It's not that these issues are unimportant. They are very practical. Some of them might include, the, you know, uh, the, the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Not whether we should celebrate the Lord's Supper. All Christians recognize that. But what's it mean? What's it implied? Uh, the mode of baptism. All Christians recognize that baptism is required to be part of the household of faith. But how much water do you need to use, really? And who should it be applied to? Christians for generations have disagreed about these things, and it doesn't, shouldn't separate us as if we are somehow one group or another are second-class Christians. And then there are issues that are just simply personal preference, whether we sing enough hymns or whether we sing too many hymns. Whether somebody has ruined your favorite hymn by putting a new tune to it. Or somebody has fixed a hymn that you hated because it just reminded you of a funeral. And now you wish everybody else would only sing the new tune. Whether there should be carpet or no carpet. Whether we should wear masks or no masks. There are any number of things that are important. And people have different opinions in the church. And those opinions can create friction, and the friction can lead to fracture. There's an old saying in the church, many have attributed it to Augustine or some other great theologian of old. The reality is it only goes back to the early 17th century from a, and comes from a, um, a relatively unknown German Lutheran theologian named Rupertus Meldinius. Now, I know nothing about him. Um, I would doubt anybody else does either. Except at one point he, he claimed this three-point saying. In essentials, unity non-essentials liberty in all things charity and he captures the essence of what the Apostle Paul is saying in in Romans chapter 14 that we though we have our differences if we are followers of Christ who have been made one have been brought together in order to present to the world the power of the gospel 
that takes broken pieces, makes them whole, makes them one, and makes them beautiful. And we dare not separate what God has put together over petty issues. Now, Paul continues that argument here in Romans 15. In the first few verses, Paul refers to that. And, and he continues the argument. He, he does two things that are, are rather interesting. Uh, one is he, he points to Jesus as our example. And I, you can check me to see if I'm correct in this, but I'm, I'm quite sure. This is the first time in the book of Romans that Paul points to Jesus as an example. Jesus is all through the book of Romans, but this is the first time that Jesus is lifted up as an example, specifically lifted up. There are things that we can look at and we can take example from, but this is the first time Paul says like and is pointing to him as our example. And while it's not the theme of what I want to talk about, it's so vitally important, particularly in our present day culture, because there are those who, in the guise of Christianity, are claiming that Jesus is primarily our example. We look the way that Jesus lived and the way that he related to other people, and if we just follow in his footsteps and do what Jesus did, that's the essence of Christianity. Well, if that's the case, it seems rather strange that Paul would take 15 chapters before he points to Jesus as an example. He would start there. Jesus is an example, and we can't, and he certainly is not less an example. But more than being an example, Jesus is our Redeemer. Jesus is our Savior. And then when we understand that he is our Savior, he is our Redeemer, he is our King, now we can look at him as the example as well. And Paul points to Jesus as our example. And then as he continues this idea of harmony, of different people, different pieces, different notes being played out at the same time in order for the beautiful music to be made, he also makes a, a seemingly rather sharp turn and he connects this theme of harmony to the issue of hope. And he says that somehow this hope comes from our harmony. And that, that harmony also the harmony gives us the hope, and then the hope gives us the ability to live in harmony. But even more than the hope that we gain from living together in harmony, seeing God at work, bringing apart different people, different backgrounds, different positions, different views, different personalities, he says that our harmony is also what gives hope to the watching world. And then he points us to Jesus and saying, there are certain characteristics of Jesus' attitude and his life that we need to recognize and then follow in order for us to enjoy and to express this harmony which leads to hope. And the first thing that the Apostle Paul says to us is this, and he points to us, is that Jesus does not live just to please himself. Let me go back here and I'll read beginning in verse 1. You know, he's talking about the, the harmony because that's important. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Failings in, you know, in other words, the things that annoy those who have liberty. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good or her good to build him or her up. And here's where Christ, Paul points to Christ. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, 
the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, stop and think about that for just a moment. What, what is it that Paul is saying here? And what does this mean? Those who reproached you. Who is the you? And the answer is God. This is a prayer that the Messiah was offering to God the Father. And he was reproached by the sin and the rebellion of humanity. Beginning with our first father, Adam, his wife, and Eve, and continuing through every one of our lives. Our sin is a reproach to God. And so who is reproached? God. And who, is the, who are those who reproach? We do. But what does it mean, those who, the reproach that, of those who reproached you fell on me? Fell on who? On Christ. On Jesus himself. What was it that fell on him? God's response to our reproach. The punishment that our sins deserve. The wrath and the power of God was poured out on him. Because he volunteered to take it in our place. Think about this for a moment. If Jesus had lived to just please himself, uh, as in what would give him the immediate pleasure, because we are told that it is for the, the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Uh, but in the immediate context of things, we know that it wasn't enjoyable. Uh, the night before, just hours before he, he went to the cross, he was sweating blood as he was praying. Um, again, I'm not a doctor, but that seems kind of serious to me. And from what I've read, that's an indication of extreme anxiety. Uh, when you are so anxious that your you know, cells begin to burst and, and you begin to sweat blood. That's a, that's a serious, serious condition. That's not somebody saying, yeah, whatever happens, happens. So I die, I'll rise again in a couple days, take a couple days off. You know, that's not the attitude. This was a serious, serious issue, which led him to pray. Father, if there's any other way, let's go with another way. If Jesus was living to please himself, he never would have endured the scorn and the shame and the punishment and the cruelty of the cross. He would have gone that other way. He never would have prayed, nevertheless, Father, not my will, but your will be done. He's, he's confessing that in the immediacy, if he was going to bring pleasure to himself, he would have never gone to the cross and then rise again on the third day. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Had Jesus lived to please himself and never gone to the cross? I want you to think about the sin in your life. The things that you struggle with, the things that perhaps you should struggle with. And the brokenness. And the pain. And the regrets that you've accumulated over the years. And I want you to think about those and then think about it this way. What if Jesus had just lived for himself? The way many of us do. Trying to find the road of the most comfort to meet my own personal preferences. 
then you and I would not only be left in our sin, but our pain, our sufferings, and our regrets would be with us without hope of ever being removed. Praise to God that Jesus did not live just for himself. He came and endured the scorn and he endured the shame and he bore the cross. He was broken so that you and I might live. And to quote Samwise Ganji, he did not live to please himself so that one day all sad things will come untrue. And Paul is pointing to Jesus and saying, Jesus did not live for himself. And before he says that, he's pointing to him and saying, then you who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, you shouldn't dare to live for yourself. Jesus lived for God's glory, the Father's glory. He said, I never do anything that the Father doesn't instruct me to do. And he lived for your good, your joy, your freedom, your salvation, your eternity. He lived to build you up to restore you to what you were created to be, and even now, as he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father, or on the throne at the right hand of the Father. The scripture says he lives to intercede for you, to pray for you. Paul tells us, you who are followers of Christ should not live simply to please yourself. You live in accord with Christ. For the good of your neighbor so that he or she might be built up made whole to be seen as the work of God by faith in what Christ accomplished on the cross we have a greater purpose that no matter how we differ we share and as we work together on that, it is beautiful music. As we focus on that rather than our own preferences, our preferences begin to fade. As we see the work of the kingdom that God has brought us into. Paul says, secondly, not only did Jesus didn't live for himself, Jesus welcomes you. Look with me at verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And here Paul is showing us how Jesus brings harmony that glorifies God and gives hope to those who are around us. Jesus welcomes us. The question is, how does Jesus welcome us? How does Jesus welcome you? How does Jesus welcome me? And it's important that we recognize it's not the passive, hey, welcome, good morning, enjoy yourself, let me know if you have any questions, and then he goes on his merry way. That's nice. But that's not the example that Paul is pointing to in Christ. Jesus welcomes us not with a, a, a passive niceness, but with a passionate pursuit. And the best illustration that I can think of is found in the scripture in Jesus' own 
uh, parable of the prodigal son, or I would say the prodigal sons, because the reality is it's a picture of God and his relationship to two sons, both of whom are prodigals, uh, but we tend to have cleaned it up. If you look at the two sons, it is a really good picture of the strong and the weak. Uh, the wild one uh, was, uh, I guess, in the odd way, bizarre way, the strong, um, although he went over the edge, he decided to exercise liberty that really was not his to exercise. And the older son, who says that he had slaved for the father, you know, I did everything I was supposed to, you know, I endured all of this, uh, I followed all the rules, I should be considered special. Well, he was a prodigal too, because he was still not living in relationship with the father. And, and so how does God welcome? And God welcomes passionately in pursuit, because we're told in that parable that when the son who had gone away and who pushed himself into depravity was still far off, the father ran to him and embraced him, weeping and excited in love, a picture of the love the father has for his own who are returning, broken, even if with inadequate knowledge. Because the son was not coming home in order to be restored. He was coming home just simply to find a haven, just something better than what he had. And he was fully embraced with the grace of God, the love of God in the, in the person of the father of the story. Even the second son, who didn't go far away, he'd just gone in hidden in the barns to sulk and to pout and to... You know, quite honestly, if I'd been the father in that and my son acted this way, I'd said, leave him out there. He'll come into the party when he's hungry enough, you know? So that's, you know, this is just ridiculous. But fortunately, God's not like me. And in this one, which we don't tend to look at very much, how did he pursue this wayward son who thought that he was good? He went to him. God welcomes us passionately by coming to us, and he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He welcomes us with open arms. He welcomes us with rejoicing. And as we studied in the book of Romans, he did this while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still God's enemies, we were trying to live our own lives without regard or in direct defiance of God. We were living to please ourselves. And maybe at times in order to please ourselves, we try to please some of the people who are around us, but we didn't care what God thought. God, who is rich in mercy, reached out to you in mercy, and he gave you grace. And what's more that we see in this passage is that Jesus does not just welcome us uh, and then leave us to fend for ourselves. He is continuing at work. And he has made the promise that he just as he began to work in us, he will continue until we are what we are supposed to be. And Paul points in saying, you are to welcome one another. You are to welcome people just as Christ welcomed you. To live in accord with Christ is to do what he did, experiencing the welcoming of Christ, and that's first and foremost. But now having been received in Christ, welcome others. And so here's the question. Is there anybody that you are welcoming in that way? Is there anybody that you are welcoming that you really don't like? 
in the church. Other Christians that may be part of other churches. Is there anybody who you are welcoming who is not part of the church, may not even have desired to be part of the church, but that you love and you are pursuing passionately in order that you may give your life, that they may have life? Who could you welcome like this? And see, that's not an insignificant question, and it's not just, you know, moralizing the passage. There's really a fascinating thing that is taking place here, uh, and, and we see it begin to evolve in these next verses. Because we need to remember the principles. Jesus didn't live for just himself, or for his own, to live to please himself. And Jesus welcomes Jesus is welcoming for the purpose of reconciling the nations into one family. Look at verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then following that, in verses 10 through 12, you have a string of, uh, of Old Testament quotes, or probably better expressed, Old Testament paraphrases. And what is, makes it a, a paraphrase is it's, it's, it's a quote with the change of one word, because in all of the others, the, the word nations or, or peoples, which is usually in Greek, ethnos, or you know, in, in Hebrew, it's, you know, the, the idea is peoples or people groups, um, that encompass every tribe, tongue, and nation throughout the world. And, and that's, the, that's the original language. But Paul substitutes the word Gentile here, which is interesting. And I can't explain the, the full significance because, again, I, I don't understand it, and I really don't know that I'd ever thought about that before until this week as I've been studying this particular passage. Uh, but there is something there. And I suspect that part of what is there is that Paul is moving from a general people and, you know, world, love, everybody, to a little bit more specific, Gentiles. That would evoke a response in the Jewish believers that were first reading this. I mean, Gentiles, they were, they were the enemies of the Jews. They were unclean. They were uncouth. I mean, this is a reflection of, of racism as well. And, and so when you're just told love people, well, you know, most of us are in favor of that. People are easy to love if, they're not, if you're not around them. But now he's more personalizing this, and the picture that he's presenting is somebody that many of them would have responded like, you want me to love somebody from that, that group, which ironically was the vast majority of the world. The Gentiles were the nations. If you were not Jewish, you were Gentile. And what this passage is telling us is this, is that Jesus came and he gave himself and he welcomes you and he welcomes me for this purpose that the Gentiles might also be enfolded in to become part of God's artwork because of the power of the cross and praise and glorify God. 
Paul's reminding us that from the very beginning of the expression of the covenants, well, even the very beginning, uh, that uh, going back even into Genesis chapter 3, that God always had the nations in view, that it was never just to be a small band of people that would be his. But these people, Israel and the church, exist to be as Christ to those who are around them and who are far off, that they might see a picture and have hope. See, what Paul is saying here in these words, which sort of are a little confusing at first, I, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, the Jewish people. Christ came and made himself a servant to his own people, uh, but to the Jewish people, in order to show God's truthfulness. God had made some promises. And in Christ doing this, he was fulfilling those promises in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. In other words, Abraham and, and followed the, the covenants that God had made in promising to bless the nations through this people and promising that the Savior would come through this line. And so Jesus was obedient, and Jesus did all of these things for this purpose, is to prove that God is truthful and to prove that the covenants' promises were always right. And part of that was to fulfill what the purpose of the covenant was in the first place, which is to bring people from every tribe and tongue and nation and to knit them all together into one new family, the family of God, one new kingdom where Christ Jesus reigns. And by comparison, Paul is saying, you know, the things that are dividing you in Romans 14, the things that divide most churches are intramural squabbling. And you're squabbling about these intramural insignificant things that you prefer, that you wish, and some are even more important. When there is a kingdom that is advancing and you have been part, enlisted to be part of that, and your part of that is not just go, but just live. Just get along. Invest your life in others. Paul says, no way should we be involved in that kind of intramural squabbling. The mission to which we are called is to both Jews and Gentiles. And we are to be one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That's the kingdom of God. I don't care whether it's part of our Pledge of Allegiance or not. And it's the only place where there will be liberty and justice for all is in the kingdom of God. And you, who are believers and followers of Christ, have been entrusted to live that out and be ambassadors for it, not only to the watching world, but we are ambassadors as we live it out here together. And we see this kind of reconciliation is played out unnoticed in, in many churches and sometimes more grand, where people who were enemies who are brought together into one family. Perhaps most vivid in my recollection was the, the story some of you are familiar with is the, the story of Jim Elliott, who was a missionary to uh, natives in South America. When he, Nate Saint, and a couple of other friends from Wheaton College went together to reach to minister to these people, um, they were killed by the natives who they were trying to love. It became national news. Life magazine put them on the cover, and, and it was known by everybody. It's, it's forgotten by many today, but 
It was national news that these missionaries who were going to try to demonstrate love had been killed. What fewer people are familiar with is the story that went on after that had happened. Some of you are familiar with it. Uh, Steve Saint, um, whose mother was a member of our home church, so the widow of, of Nate Saint. Uh, but Steve Saint wrote a, a book and produced a, a movie in you know, 15 years ago called Beyond End of the Spear. And what many people didn't know is that after the missionaries were killed, Marge Saint, Elizabeth Elliot, and Jim Elliot's um, sister, all moved to live in proximity to the tribe that had killed their husbands. And they developed relationships. And through those relationships, the entire tribe came to faith in Christ, repented, not only of all of their sin, but lived in great remorse for having killed these men who came to them in love. And in, in the film Beyond Into the Spear, it carries the story of Steve Saint, who was living among them, and the very man who had speared his father, who was a teenage warrior at the time, named Minkaye. And they became as brothers. And in the film, which is available for streaming, I think, I don't know if it's on Netflix right now or, uh, or if it is uh, Amazon, but it's worth a watch. You, you see the genuine love that has taken place as people gave their lives to the ones who had killed their parents, killed their spouses. Neman Kaye comes to the United States and gets to experience an entirely different world than the jungles that he experienced. And I won't go into that, both for time and to not mess it up if you watch it. All I can tell you is it's hilarious. But those who were once enemies are now family, reconciled, because a few chose to live, to love, to welcome. And in following the footsteps of Christ, the example, these people came to know Christ, the Redeemer. Paul begins this passage by telling us we who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of those who are weak and not just to please ourselves. It's a reminder to us there is something more than us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. It's about Christ. It's about the kingdom of God. And it is about those that God is reaching. And Paul says, let us each then please our neighbor for his good or her good and to build him or her up. And the answer is not to try harder, but the answer is found in the last verse here, which is a beautiful doxology that reminds us that the answer is found in the grace of God that has come in the person of Jesus Christ because we fail. We fail at this love thing. We fail at loving one another. We fail at loving the people who are around us. We fail at loving the nations. We, we fail. And sometimes we then 
draw a whole different bullseye and pretend like, well, we didn't really fail. This is what I was trying all along, but it's not God's bullseye. Sometimes we just feel like failures and that doesn't motivate us to try anymore. But all through this, Paul is pointing us to Christ, who I said earlier, he is not just our example, who is our example, but he is never stepping away from the reality that Christ is our hope, as well as our example. And he has fulfilled everything perfectly for you and I, for our past failures, for our present failures, for our future failures. And so Paul is saying, look, this is the way that you live, the way you live together. Live in harmony without compromising the essentials. But you always love with your eyes focused on Christ, who is now and will always be our hope and our salvation. And in him and through him and him through us will these other things come to be. Father, we come in thanksgiving for this word, hard though it may be, hard to hear for some of us, hard probably for all of us to live out. And yet what a delight it is that we realize that it is not by our perfection, but by Christ's perfection that we live. So Father, forgive us for our failings and forgive us even more perhaps for not even caring to try. But nevertheless, use us. Let us be a people who walk with Christ, his power, that we may be reconciled, that we may be in harmony, that we may be the source of hope to our neighbors and to the nations. We pray this with great confidence, for this is your instruction to us. We pray it in Christ. Amen.